This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Our episode today is about systemic racism in the legal profession. The topic was inspired by the Black Lives Matter protests around the world over the killing of George Floyd and other unarmed black people. But the issue isn't a new one, nor is it confined to across the border. An in-house compensation survey conducted this year by the Council Network found that racialized lawyers earn a mean salary of $12,000 below their non-racialized counterparts. They're also less represented at the two highest job titles. The statistics in private practice are no better. In 2016, in Ontario, there were 29.4% of all lawyers there were racialized, but only 7.8% of all law firm partners were racialized. And this is across all practices and practice sizes. We're extremely privileged to have Arlene Huggins as our guest today. She's a partner with Kosky Minsky in Toronto, where she heads the employment law group. We'll be drawing on her expertise in this topic of employment and human rights law, along with her personal experiences as a Black lawyer in Canada. Arlene, thank you so much for being here today to discuss systemic racism in the Canadian legal profession. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I want to start by acknowledging that this is a burden, asking you to do the work of explaining to us your experiences. And I was wondering if we can start there. Are you often called upon in this capacity? Do you feel comfortable sharing with us what it is like for you and how that affects your mental health, your practice, and your free time? Well, I think the answer is yes, I'm often called upon and not not just myself, like legal colleagues of mine. Uh, we've, we've, in the last number of weeks, um, been, especially in the last number of weeks, been sharing our experiences. And um, certainly, um, we have all noticed a significant uptake in people wanting to dialogue about what's going on, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, um, how it's affecting us within the legal profession. And um, I've experienced that, certainly. Uh, many, many emails, many phone calls, many requests to, to speak to, to various organizations. Uh, that certainly have been the case in the last uh, number of months, uh, especially. Is it a burden? I think I'll answer yes and no. Uh, it's, it's a burden insofar as it's, it's obviously time-consuming. It's obviously, uh, in, in some parts, very emotionally draining, certainly for myself and, and other colleagues. So in that sense, is it a burden? Yes. Um, but I think many of us see it as a responsibility as well in terms of both educating and just bringing the dialogue out and making it more vocal. And I think that's, we believe that's essential to both generally in terms of uh, systemic racism and anti-Black racism, but in particular in the legal profession. There's been a lot going on in the legal profession in the last number of years concerning both uh, systemic issues within the legal profession and in particular the situation surrounding Black lawyers within the legal profession. It's been in the press. 
quite a bit. It's it's still ongoing. So it, it is a, a matter that uh, we think is necessary to to bring out to the open. Okay. Well, thank you for doing that for us today and for all of our listeners. We appreciate you taking the mental energy, the time away from your practice to discuss these issues with us. You just mentioned, actually, so it's a good segue to uh, my next question. You mentioned that in the last few years, there has been a lot of press about um, what's happening in the Canadian legal profession when it comes to battling systemic racism. And one piece in particular that really stuck with me was a piece in 2017 by Hadia Roderick, published in the Globe and Mail, an op-ed about her personal experiences uh, of being black on on Bay Street. Sorry. Would you share with us, for you, what it has been like for you to practice as a Black lawyer in Toronto? I know Hadia, and we've sat on a board of the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers together. It took a lot of courage for her to publish her experiences, um, but she's not the first. Uh, Michael Baxter, who's a Canadian uh, lawyer who left uh, Canada to practice in the States, uh, for similar reasons to what Hadia expressed, and this was back in 1980s, I guess it was would have been wow. for Michael. So this is this is not <laughs> this is not new within the legal profession in particular. It started for me as as early as law school, where uh, I I went to law school at the University of Toronto, uh, where I also did my undergrad. Another student asked me uh, to talk to them about the special program for Black students at the law school. And of course, I was quite confused and asked what what they meant and, you know, was told, you know, the the program, the quota program for black students here. Well, of course, there was no quota program for black students at, at UT uh, Law School. My response was, oh, is there a program? <laughs> and they mumbled something in embarrassment, uh, recognizing uh, inappropriateness of, of their question. My My point being... Um, and quite frankly, I wish there had been at the time. Uh, there was a, a program for Indigenous students at the time. Um, I think there should have been a, a program for Black students at the time. Um, but the point being the assumption, um, and this is part of the systemic problem, the assumption that, um, you know, that, that, that Black students uh, are there uh, because of a program. Um, I am not against programs that assist students from particular backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think they're necessary. And in fact, U of T has now started um, engaging in in programs of that nature, both in the medical school, um, in the law school, um, programs that assist and deal with the historic lack of opportunities for for students, uh, Black students within um, whether professional medicine, law, other other uh, areas, um, but but this kind of of, of presumption of where our place is mm-hmm. um, has continued throughout my career. Um, I still get after thirty years of practice. I still have people uh, within the courtrooms, um, within the courthouses, mistaking me for a court clerk. This is an area where lawyers are. That's where we are. That's our place. Mm-hmm. Yet it's not my place, <laughs> apparently. And I'm seen as not belonging in this place. Right. So from your in, from the very first stages of law school up to 
partnership at a prestigious firm. Uh, up to now. And this is indicative of a number of our experiences, whether it be Hadia, whether it was Michael's experience, whether other lawyers. I think the Law Society has has looked at this issue mm-hmm. uh, in the Racialized uh, Licensees Task Force report that came out a few years ago now that uh, looked at this issue, that, that looked at Black licensees and lawyers um, in the profession and their experiences and found exactly similar things to what Hadia and Michael um, expressed they experienced at their in, in their in their legal careers. So this is not a one-off. Hadia is not a one-off. Michael was not a one-off. This is a systemic issue. These right. are systemic issues and um, that require systemic address. Yeah, you're not a one-off either. You've had the same experiences. And when we see the, you know, we'll see something like Hadia's story that is really impactful. We see what is happening internationally right now because of George Floyd and the killings of other Black Americans, the murders of other Black Americans. We see a lot of reaction. And when it comes to the legal profession, we did see in 2017 a lot of reaction. We're seeing a lot of reaction now. There's the Black North Summit. We have over 200 companies signed on, Canadian companies, including some, you know, Bay Street law firms? Um, This is a hard question. So do you think we're starting to dismantle the systemic racism in the profession? Do you see evidence of this happening at all? Where are you in that thought process? I think what we see are some efforts being made by some, not across the board. And I think there are some firms who are making efforts in terms of making their workplace uh, more inclusive and have engaged in initiatives to to try to do that. Um, And uh, organizations like the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers, uh, the Black Law Students Association are engaged with them uh, in doing so. And um, so there is some progress, I think, being made. I don't know that that's across the board. We hear this um, primarily in a mid to larger firms, but you have to realize the majority of Black lawyers practice in smaller workplaces right? Um, or they're in-house counsel. There are not necessarily the same types of efforts being made in smaller firms um, and some organizations, large organizations. Uh, what I would say is, number one, it starts with dialogue, which is mm-hmm. which is why myself and others are willing to talk and speak about this issue. But it also involves concrete action, and it and it starts at the pipeline with students coming in. Uh, it starts with students, young lawyers entering into the firms, and and recruitment initiatives to encourage black lawyers to 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 enter into these firms where they have historically been denied, refused entry. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is now the firms, in my view, have to actually reach out to engage Black lawyers and students because historically they were not welcome. Not so historically, as Hidea's situation (laughs) shows. Not so historically. Three years ago, Um, yes. Not not welcome. And, And I think this is... It's a whole facet of of various initiatives that have to be looked at. Mentoring, 
what I call championship, many have called championship, which is not just having a mentor, but having someone who has a vested interest in seeing Black lawyers succeed and their success is tied to that success. So their valuation, evaluations and their own ability to advance in the firm is tied to ensuring uh, that racialized uh, lawyers um, are uh, involved in key cases, uh, engage with key clients, develop those relationships that help you advance in a law firm context. That has been missing in, in the past. It's been an absence. Black and racialized lawyers don't come from necessarily backgrounds where they have familial or other relationships that give them an edge into the profession. I didn't know any lawyers when mm-hmm. I started law. My family did not know any lawyers when I entered into this profession. I had no one to call up to ask, what is the profession like? What do I have to do to succeed? You have to figure that out as you go. So you start in a context where um, you're already having these challenges and they're magnified when you when you enter into the law firm, um, where you may be engaged with individuals who grew up together, whose families, you know, had cottages um, on the same lake, or uh, their kids went to the same summer camps or schools. Those type of relationships don't necessarily exist for racialized lawyers joining a firm, right? And and so. You have to foster some way to engage Black lawyers to make them feel welcome. I was the first Black lawyer in my firm. I was the first and only still Black partner in my firm. We are the first still. And this is after 30 years of practice. (laughs) You know, they're still the first. We're the first in, in many firms or one or two among hundreds in some, in some instances, in some large firms. And that's also a challenge um, that has to be talked about, addressed, and, and, and improved. The whole legal profession has to, has to engage in this issue uh, to, to, to move forward. And we have not moved much from where we were <laughs> you know, many years ago. Um, but as I say, there are, there, there are signs that things are, are improving in some respects, uh, not as fast as we would like. Um, and there's still a situation within uh, the profession that some are denying our realities. Right. Some are denying our realities. Some are denying the experiences that we have shared. Um, uh, it is disturbing to see that there are members of our profession who are denying the racialized licensee report of the Law Society. Oh, wow. Um, and these are benchers. These are okay. benchers within our profession that are denying the reality of, of the results of that report. It's, it's, we still have a lot of obstacles um, to, to, to deal with. Yeah, that's depressing, isn't it? 
it's it's certainly depressing and disturbing. I wanted to draw on your legal expertise as well, and I think this is actually a good moment to do so. You talk about the fact that some people in the legal profession don't even recognize that systemic racism exists. As an employment lawyer, what would you advise somebody coming to you? You know, it's insidiously embedded within our organizations and institutions. Do you think law is effective in combating these processes? I think law can be used as a tool. I think um, there are direct and indirect uh, ways in which law can be used as a tool. Besides the, the more traditional ways of accessing the Human Rights Tribunal, for instance, in in instances of both uh, direct and systemic discrimination. Um, That's a difficult thing for for individuals um, Mm -hmm. to do. It's costly, number one. (laughs) It's costly. Um, And it is, you know, financially uh, and otherwise costly. Um, And and, uh, one would hope that Individuals do not have to go through um, that on a regular basis in order to get redress. I think I think what I would say is, and and what I see both in my employment and in my investigation uh, practice, mm-hmm. uh, workplace investigation practices, we have to be, and and when I say we, it's the collective we, more vocal and call out. Um, employers who uh, are not engaging in initiatives uh, that address and redress uh, systemic inequities within their workplaces. There are differentials of income in terms of salaries, Mm -hmm. bonuses, differential practices in terms of who gets bonuses and on the basis upon which uh, individuals um, receive uh, discretionary bonuses, practices on advancement, practices on promotion, embedded in various employment practices are, are and can be systemic barriers that prevent uh, individuals from racialized uh, backgrounds from advancing. It's about opportunity. It's about ensuring opportunities are equitable and fair, going beyond beyond simply status quo, um, because we know the status quo is not working for us. Mm. The status quo is not working for us. If you had a client who had the experiences that Hadia had at her firm come to you and ask from an employment lawyer lens, what should I do? Would you advise her to go through the legal process? Or do you think that would not be beneficial to her career? People come to me with a problem. My job is to try to help them solve the problem. Um, In some instances, my advice is a legal one and legal recourse. And some instances, um, my advice is more strategic in terms of other uh, mechanisms to address, encouraging to dialogue with their workplace in terms of bringing issues to the attention. In many instances, people come to me and they're frustrated, they're discouraged, uh, they're emotionally drained. Um, and as a result, they haven't had a dialogue with their employer about their situations or they're fearful 
Um, so some of it is, is about accessing what avenues within the workplace are available to them. In uh, many times, it's uh, inquiring about whether there is a mentor or a champion within the workplace that they identify with, that they can connect with, that they can dialogue with. Uh, to assist them in dealing with the issues. Obviously, it, deal, it depends on what the issue is. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so there are various and sundry mechanisms. In many instances, however, uh, the internal mechanisms are really not there. Right. Uh, they, 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 they lack a mentor. They lack a champion. They lack people within the workplace which, to, to whom they identify and could have this dialogue with. Um, and so many are forced to take a legal route because they don't have internal internal solutions mm-hmm. um, or feel they don't have internal solutions to a problem and it forces them to take a legal route. Um, and sometimes that's necessary. Uh, but there's a whole discourse about what solutions may be available to address this. And luckily, there are more and more internal solutions um, by way of policies, uh, discrimination, harassment policies that are in place, internal mechanisms for mediation um, and other processes. More and more employers, certainly in my practice, uh, recognize the importance of these policies and recognize the importance of investigating complaints of uh, discrimination, harassment on the basis of race or any other enumerated grounds. They recognize the importance to their workplace and mm. to their workforce. Okay. So from your vantage point as an employment lawyer, you are seeing some strides when it comes to actually not just having the policies, but actually attempting to enact the policies. Yeah, absolutely. And attempting to change the workplace culture, because ultimately that's what this is about. The policies are there to ultimately change the workplace culture and um, I'm seeing more and more employers who are, who are, that's, that's the goal. The goal is not the policy. The goal is to change the workplace culture. Okay. And, and that's as it should be. This might be a hard question. I'm not sure if this is something you speak to or not, but from your lens doing these workplace investigations, you know, you could do a master's thesis on this, but what is the single most effective or efficient way to change a culture that historically um, was racist? It's not an overnight process. Um, and I think there is no one solution or way of attacking the issue. One of the key components is you need to know your workplace. Um, the, the importance of data. Data collection is key. Um, within the legal profession, in terms of firms and other uh, workplaces, uh, dis- disaggregated, disaggregated data is key. Uh, I've been into workplaces, they collect data, but they collect data on how many um, racialized people are in their workplace. I, I would argue that's not sufficient. There uh, are many studies to show that even within racialized groups, there is disproportionate treatment. So you can't just collect data on how many racialized people in the workplace. You have to delve into how many Black people, how many Asian people, how many from various uh, different uh, 
um, uh, constituencies. Uh, that that is how you get a true picture of mm-hmm. of, of your workplace, and that, that's key to address because there may be uh, instances where uh, certain um, communities uh, require different different strategies and uh, different levels of strategy. Indigenous individuals, Black individuals in particular, uh, come from a history, a historical context of oppression, um, white supremacy, and um, instances of slavery uh, that, that create a whole different dynamic than, than dealing with the other uh, constituencies. Um, LGBTQ and their history of, 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 of uh, discrimination and, 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 and hate, hatred. These require different strategies within the workplace to address systemic um, systemic issues and and how you create a, a workplace culture that that uh, gives various these various groups uh, a place um, and and power within these organizations. Part of it is is ed- is educating uh, individuals who have not experienced uh, racism in their lives have not experienced marginalization, have not experienced a power um, a differential or oppression um, and, and have no context in which to talk about anti-Black racism. I find that really fascinating. I wouldn't have picked data or just I wouldn't have thought of data collection as the first thing that comes to mind. And that really shows me something. So thank you. That was just yeah a fascinating answer from your expertise. I could talk to you all day, and I know that you are pressed for time, so I am not going to. But I did want to end with um, advice that you have based on your 30-plus years of personal experience, your advice as an employment lawyer. What advice do you have for racialized lawyers and for their allies going forward? Well, first of all, um, the importance of allies cannot be understated. Uh, We are the minority (laughs) in these workplaces. Um, uh, you need allies. When I joined my firm, I had allies. I had champions. I had partners um, and other senior lawyers who were champions um, that have helped me navigate uh, this thing called a law firm, <laughs> which I had no experience with. You you need to have mentors and champions and and of all stripes, like uh, not just racialized champions or mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the fact is there may be no racialized mentors or champions in your firm because there are no racialized other people in your firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you are invariably uh, are going to have uh, non-racialized allies and champions and should have um, to help you advance, uh, within the firm. I think that's certainly, uh, certainly something that, uh, is, is key. Um, as well, I think is, uh, an outside network. Mm. One of the things that has always kept me grounded and sane is I have a network of, uh, racialized and in particular black female lawyers uh, my group, they know who they are, um, who on days uh, that you experience the type of, of, of situations that 
Michael uh, St. Patrick Baxter experienced in his time or Hadia experienced or others. You, you may feel quite demoralized. Uh, you may feel alone, very much alone. Um, and sometimes you have to pick up the phone and or, or go out for a coffee and meet those people who have shared similar experiences just to get um, encouragement, um, support. Um, so you need that both within the firm and you need it outside the firm. You need people to vent to, quite frankly. Um, and you need a firm uh, that understands, if not a true understanding because they haven't experienced these issues, an understanding and an acknowledgement that you have and are experiencing these issues. And I think that's critical. Mm -hmm. um, the support of the firm is about understanding and being empathetic to what you are going through and to, to try to address that in whatever ways um, they can and to be accountable for the initiatives that they're introducing. And that's key. Accountability, if you don't have accountability, all the way up the chain to the highest level, the partnership level, mm -hmm. um, none of this is going to work. Um, the endeavors of the firm have to be um, top down, in my view, mm -hmm. um, in terms of showing the rest of the firm how important these issues are. You have to know where you're going mm -hmm. and you have to know what's working and what's not working. And therefore, you have to constantly measure how you're doing and you have to be introspective mm -hmm. uh, and you have to ask questions. You have to ask the, 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 those within the firms that you're trying to assist, how are we doing? What sh else should we be doing? Um, people will dialogue with you. You know, if you, if you, you know, some junior lawyers and students, they may not initiate the discussion because they don't know that the discussion is welcome. Right. So, so, the, the firms have to engage them in discussion, come to them and say, we want to hear you. We want to, we want to do what's right. We want to help. We want to change things. What should we be doing? Well, Arlene, thank you so much for your time speaking with us today and sharing your experience and your expertise. I know I speak for our, all of our listeners when we say that we really appreciate it and have learned a lot. And I'm very, very happy to speak with you today. And I'm very happy that CBA says, uh, uh, engaged in this uh, equity podcast and I enjoy listening to them and I'm happy to to participate. Thank you again to Arlene for taking the time to speak with us today about systemic racism within the legal profession of Canada, for sharing both her experiences and her expertise. If you're interested in educating yourself about unconscious biases, check out our best practices for uncovering unconscious biases and learning inclusively. The CBA also published a response to anti-Black violence in the United States and Canada, calling on lawyers to play a role in reforming our justice system and working to improve the public's confidence in it. Both are available in the show notes. Tweet to us at CBA underscore news, or you can reach me at my handle at Marlise SS, 
We are on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes and leave us a review. We also have a podcast in French called Juriste Branché. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. 